I'd like to uh, have you turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 28, of all places. We're not going to get there for a while, so I've given you several minutes to get there, okay? Ezekiel 28. Before we get into that, let me mention a couple things. If you look inside the bulletin, you're going to notice that on the left-hand side it says, Alive! Promise Keepers Alive at Bow Valley. And I encourage you guys uh, to please read that. There is going to be this special men's event take place on November 9th and 10th at Bow Valley. There is early registration that actually ends, I think, uh, Monday. And so you can register online for that. And there are different prices if you register on time. Love to have you go. There were some guys, I think, at the men's retreat who expressed some interest in this. And uh, so that's fantastic. And love to have uh, as large a group as possible uh, go and be part of that. So please register online if you'd like to. If you have any questions, you can talk to Ken Haywood or Brian Taylor. I'm sure they can give you some information about it as well. And then also, uh, if you look on inside the bulletin too, you will see that there is a mention of a, on the right-hand side this time, an appreciation for Wayne and Curtis on October 17th. Wayne, we do in fact appreciate you. And we're going to show you on Wednesday evening, October 17th. If we don't show you between now and then, it's only because we're reserving our appreciation until that moment. Okay? So please, we hope everybody can make it on Wednesday evening, October 17th, to honor Wayne and Curtis for their years of service, especially in our worship ministry. Love to have everybody a part of that as well. In 1972, something happened which, like, it's not, it's not on the proportions of a world war or something like that, but there was something significant that took place in 1972. Now, if you were born in 1972, that's not it, okay? But in 1972, there was a Uh, Well, first of all, the Olympics happened that year, and there was a marathoner from the United States named Frank Shorter who attended uh, the University of Florida and ended up uh, being on the U.S. Olympic team. And it turned out he won the marathon that year for the United States. And I remember watching him come into the stadium, and, and actually, you know, they were filming him the last few miles, and I was watching the steadiness of his stride and and he, he didn't look all that smooth. Frank Shorter was never a really smooth runner, but he was very uh, efficient and very steady. And so he comes into the stadium, wins the Olympic marathon, and it was absolutely wonderful that he did, uh, for, if you're in America, that is, um, which I was and still am, although I will tell you that very quickly I'm going to be a Canadian. Uh, this, this is going to happen within that, in the next month, probably, that Robin and I and Megan are going to be Canadian citizens, and so we're quite excited about that. Um, Sorry, I was so overjoyed with being a Canadian that I kind of lost my train of thought. (laughs) Anyway, so those nasty Americans, this guy comes into the... (laughs) So Frank Shorter, I was was just enraptured by the fact that Frank Shorter won the marathon because I was a runner and really into running and and, uh, being from Oregon... Those of us who are from Oregon oftentimes are big-time runners. And the Olympic trials had been held in Eugene that year, and I'd gone down to see them. Uh, It's only about 40 miles from where I grew up. And so I went down and watched the U.S. Olympic trials, and I watched Shorter run before he ever went to the Olympics, and I watched Prefontaine run and all this stuff. It was wonderful. Anyway, let me get to the point. (laughs) Bill Bowerman was coaching the University of Oregon track team, and he was also the head of the U.S. uh, national track team that went to the Olympics. And Bowerman was a unique individual, uh, had a very creative mind, 
And just about that time when he was coaching the U.S. Olympic team, he had the idea that he wanted to do something to, uh, to promote running by making a better running shoe. And so he went to the kitchen and he grabbed his wife's waffle iron and he poured hot rubber on the waffle iron. And then he, I'm sure with some effort and probably several trials later, was able eventually to get this rubber off of the waffle iron and saw that this was just the perfect running shoe sole. And out of that, he developed a pair of running shoes and started a little company uh, for making running shoes. And what I remember in high school is that these runners from the University of Oregon, who were runners of Bowerman's, would get out of university and he would hire them as salesmen for his little company, and then they would go all over the state to the high schools and sell these new running shoes. And so I remember very clearly when Jeff Holloway, who was a University of Oregon runner, came to my high school right after Bowerman had started this company and, and was trying to sell these running shoes. And I wasn't overly impressed. I thought, you know, it's nice, but it's just this little company in Oregon. You know, I'd rather still buy Adidas or something, you know, some name brand. And so for a couple of years, I didn't buy this new shoe, but eventually they started to catch on and I thought, well, I can buy one too. And so I did, and I found them to be pretty good shoes. Well, that company continued to flourish and grow and and the fact is, is that when I was 15 or 16 years old, I just had no idea. Like you look at something, you think, well, this is just these little beginnings. This isn't going to be much. But now there's a lot of people who've heard of Nikes. They're fairly well known. Um, and, and Bill Bowerman, the, the head of track at the University of Oregon, started that company along with a couple of other guys, and it's done pretty well. Who would have known? I should have got in on that one right at the beginning. I, I actually know one guy who did. There was a good friend of mine in the church uh, who was hired very early on in Nike when it was just a, you know, just a, almost run out of a garage. And, uh, and he did very well because Nike continued to grow. But you just don't know the ramifications of events that look relatively minor in the beginning. And that is, in fact in some ways, like what we're talking about today. We're looking today at Genesis chapter 3, but don't turn there because we're going to go to Ezekiel 28 in a moment. And in Genesis chapter 3, it starts with a lady eating a piece of fruit. And who would have known what the ramifications would be of this apparently fairly minor event? Don't eat from the tree. She eats. Probably some of you have stolen some fruit at some point from some tree you weren't supposed to eat from, Wayne. And so no doubt that's happened, but this time it was huge. And who would have known the consequences? Well, there's an awful lot of questions that people have when we turn to Genesis chapter 3. We start talking about sin and we start talking about Satan and the fall of humankind. And all of a sudden, these questions come to mind. And it's not just a, the story of the fall. People want to know the answers to some of these things. And so I'm going to quickly here at the beginning deal with some of those things. And then we're going to get into what is the significance of this event. And first of all, the question that people often ask is, what about this serpent? What about this Satan character? Where did he come from? How is it that he is there? What is his, uh, his origins? Like we thought that God was the only one there. 
that he is the only eternal God. And so how is it that alongside this eternal God, you've got Satan who enters the picture? And in fact, there are some people who've said that Satan is in fact another God, that he stands alongside our God, which doesn't make any sense to me. But that's the kind of um, mental ruminations we must participate in in order to wrestle with exactly where Satan might come from. If he's not an eternal God, some source of evil that stands alongside the eternal God, then where exactly did he come from? And people have theorized, and it makes total sense, that maybe Satan is a fallen angel. In fact, if I was to say to all of you this morning, what's the most common explanation for where Satan came from? Most of you would probably say, well, we thought that he was maybe a fallen angel, which is a good answer. In fact, I think that it's not a bad answer at all. However, we don't want just answers that we think are good answers. We'd like to see biblical answers. And so we look for in the Bible to try and find these things. And it's interesting where people go. Now, one place people go is Ezekiel 28. And so look there, because this is kind of interesting. And I'd like somebody, if they would, I don't care who, if someone would just stand up and start reading from Ezekiel 28, verse 1, and to read loudly until I tell you to stop, and then I'm going to have you switch over to another verse. Don't care who it is. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 1. Go ahead, somebody. I know we have readers here. Thank you. Go ahead. Yep, first verse, then I'll tell you where to stop, and we'll go over to another verse. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the sea. But you are a man, not a God. Though you think you are as wise as God. Okay, John, now switch over to verse 12 and start reading from there. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of fire and say to him, This is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, adorned you, ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. That's good. Thank you, John. Now, this is a very interesting passage, and this is one of two major passages in the Old Testament that people typically go to to find something about the origin of Satan. 
And it's interesting. I mean, if you read through there, there are things that kind of sound that way. And if you were to continue to read in Ezekiel 28, or if you were to go to the other passage, which is in Isaiah 14, you would find similar kinds of words. And I understand how it kind of sounds like Satan being one who craved this wonderful position and had this wonderful position, but then eventually sins and decides to do evil and ends up being expelled from heaven because of this sin that he committed. But there's one problem with the passage. And that is when you look in verse 1 or you look in verse 12, you'll find that those verses are not directed toward Satan, but instead are directed toward whom? What does it say? The king of Tyre, who was simply a historical figure, who was a king, and who had mistreated Israel at various times. And because he had mistreated Israel at various times, God passes judgment on the king of Tyre. Now, that's interesting. He uses language, the writer does, in explaining who the kingdom king of Tyre is, which is quite lofty. And you wonder, where exactly did he get this language? Why is it that he says these things about the king of Tyre? Did he have this place before God and appeared to be perfect and then fell? And of course, the answer is no. He was just a human being. He made some mistakes and probably people saw that from the beginning. Now, what I think is happening is this. There was, years before Ezekiel was written, other Jewish literature that expressed similar thoughts about the origin of Satan. And I think that what's happened is that the writer of Ezekiel, Ezekiel the prophet, has taken from that literature and brought those words into his prophecy and used those to describe what he thinks is the origin of Satan, or I should say the the, uh, character, the king of Tyre, and isn't trying necessarily to say anything specific about Satan at all, but uses that language from that story in order to reflect on the evilness of the king of Tyre. So when we think about the serpent and who he is, personally, I am convinced that he's a fallen angel. Like when I think about where Satan would have come from, how is it that he's on the scene? There is not a God who stands beside Yahweh in the heavens. We don't have a dualistic system where there's a good God and a bad God and they're both eternal. We believe in one God who created all and stands above all. And so if he stands above all and created all, then I'm convinced that he had to have created whomever it is that Satan is as well. Satan cannot be a God who stands along our God. And so to say that he's a fallen angel, some kind of fallen heavenly being who had free will and then made a mistake and was expelled from heaven because of that, I think makes absolute total sense. I just don't think that Ezekiel 28 is necessarily a great basis on which to build your case. And so when you think about where he came from, you may wonder from time to time, what is the deal with Satan? Where does he come from? Is there a God as powerful as our God? And the answer is no. And we're going to see that ultimately our God will triumph over the evil that exists in our world. That's one question that people have when they think about who God is in relation to the story, how sin comes about, and all the questions that come from Genesis chapter 3. Here's another question. People sometimes wonder about original sin. To what extent does original sin impact us? Like, what's the deal 
with this first sin in terms of who we are. How am I different now because of the first sin that was committed? And we probably have all heard something about the doctrine of original sin. Well, I think, as I read through Genesis chapter 3, I'm convinced that while there isn't necessarily an original sin of Adam's that I'm guilty for, there is nonetheless the notion of a sinful nature that gets passed down from human being to human being and in fact makes us susceptible to sin. And what I mean is this. The official Catholic position on original sin is that the sins of Adam or the sin of Adam and Eve is actually passed down to you and me so that we are just as guilty as Adam was of having committed it. It's as if I committed the very first sin and that sin is passed down to me and so from birth... When I come forth from the womb, I'm already guilty of that sin before I'm ever born as that sin gets passed down to me. Well, I personally don't buy that. I just don't see where scripture talks about sin in that way. And I don't think that this sin is passed down to me in exactly that way. But I am convinced that the sinful nature that becomes part of who we are in that first sin is extremely real. Like... Isn't there something that happens to humankind through this first event of sin that changes everything about you and me? I believe that there is. You and I have a tendency, a predilection, a penchant for sin. And when it comes along, we tend to give in. We tend not to have the kind of strength and power to defeat sin that I think God would love us to have and one day actually gives us in Jesus. And so we're weak. We make mistakes. We blow it. We are rebellious. We're not at all what God wants us to be. And I believe that this actually comes from our sinful nature that's passed down from this very first event. I don't buy the argument for original sin the way that I described it as Adam's sin of which I'm actually guilty And so I don't come forth from the womb in that way. And we look at a beautiful little baby and we don't think to ourselves, now here's a sinful little kid. We don't think that for a couple of years. (laughs) Eventually we decide and we wonder, whose kid is this really? But in the beginning, we look at that child and we think, here is a beautiful baby that God has brought into our world. And I believe that that baby is, in fact, free from sin. Do I think that the baby, at the same time, as he continues or she continues to grow, is going to have the potential, the penchant, the predilection to sin? Indeed. That's what we do. But in the beginning, there is that freedom from sin that God gives us. And so I don't buy the idea of original sin, but boy, I sure know what sinful nature is about. And I experienced it. And I think that that's exactly what happens here as a result of the fall. Another question people ask. They want to know about the knowledge of good and evil. What exactly is going on here? And here's the problem. If I ask you the question, did Eve know before she ate from the fruit that to eat from the fruit was wrong? What is the answer? Yes, of course she did. God had already said to her and to Adam... Don't eat from these trees. And so when Satan comes along and says to her, God didn't tell you you couldn't eat from the trees. 
God's just not wanting you to be like him. She knows, she knows that Satan is giving her a line. She fully understands that it's wrong for her to eat from the tree. She gives in anyway, but she knows that it's wrong. So how is it if she knows already that it's wrong that the tree is called the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Did she not know what was bad before she ate from the tree? Indeed, she did. So what's going on? And I've wrestled with this a bit. I think that what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is really all about is the notion of recognizing who we are before God. We know good, and we begin to recognize evil. And we see that there is a distinction between ourselves and God. There is a difference. I stand before God differently than he does. And my eyes get opened, and I understand then the difference, the huge difference between myself and God. You know, before this, in the garden, God was talking and living with human beings, talking with Adam and Eve, and there was a pretty good relationship there. In fact, there was almost a sense of mutuality going on between the two of them. But things drastically change upon the eating of that fruit. And all of a sudden, they don't have the same relationship that they had before. Something has changed in their understanding and perception of who they are before him. And so I wonder about the knowledge of good and evil actually being an understanding that God is good and we're not. And the huge distinction, the huge gap that exists between ourselves and humankind, or ourselves and God. And if that's not, in fact, what happens with the eating of the fruit. Don't know for sure, but I wrestle with that. I certainly am convinced that it's not simply the idea that after she eats, now she understands what's good and what's bad. Because very clearly she knew that before. Well, those are some th- questions that people have about the fall and about this event in Genesis chapter 3, but they don't really get to the heart of the issue. What is the heart of the issue? And what I think as I wrestle with those things and then cast them aside as being not really the heart, is that right at the heart of what happens is the destruction of relationship. I think that what happens is that God, after he creates us, wants to be in relationship with us more than anything. In fact, that's the very reason that he created us. Remember we talked the last couple of weeks about how God in his Trinitarian self was relational? And how he wanted more than anything to be in relationship with human beings? Well, if God wants more than anything to be in relationship with human beings, and he created us for exactly that purpose, and then this event of the fall is told in the way that it is, it makes me think that that's the very problem that occurs and is being addressed with the story of the fall. It's the breakdown of relationship between ourselves and God. Now just track with me here through the story and see if you don't think this is the case. Again, we've already mentioned that Eve hears the servant talking and the servant basically says to her, look, God has lied to you. God has told you that you're not supposed to eat, but but he's scared about you, what you're going to find out if you eat. You're going to find out that you can be like him. And don't you really want to be like him anyway? Kelly's paraphrase of what the serpent says. And so she ends up eventually eating. But why does she eat? Isn't it because there is developed between her and God now a lack of trust? Doesn't she at some level believe what Satan says about who God really is and about what God really wants? 
And she begins to not trust what God is all about and why he tells her not to eat from the trees. And so eating from the trees is certainly an act of disobedience. We talk about that. It's an act of disobedience. But more than just an act of disobedience, for her to say, I'm going to eat from the tree, is a defiance of the relationship. It's a breaking of relationship. And she says, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what Satan has suggested instead of maintaining the relationship with this one who loves me. And so there's a breakdown in trust and a break of relationship between her and God, which maybe is really what obedience is all about. Notice what happens with the relationship between the woman and the man. All of a sudden, he recognizes that she's sinned. Now, it's interesting. We always blame the woman for this. Eve is guilty of the first sin. Have you ever looked at the text to determine exactly what the man was doing while Eve is eating from the fruit? Read read the the text right now from Genesis chapter 3 and just go through there and just ask yourself the question, where is he while this is going on? You won't find him screaming at her, begging her not to eat. You won't find him turning to God and saying, stop her God, look what she's about to do. Instead, what the Bible says is that the man was there too. And that she turned to him. And when he'd seen that it was good to eat, he grabs some and he starts eating too. And so it seems to me as though we males are somehow just as culpable as you females when it comes to this first sin. People forever have talked about how he at least doesn't take any leadership in the situation. He doesn't in any way try and inhibit her from going and eating the fruit. And so we have two people who are culpable. And then we all know how eventually they start blaming others, she blaming the serpent, and the man saying to God, the woman you gave me, and maybe that's God's fault. The woman you gave me, she ate, and now I've eaten too, but it's got to be her fault, I think he says in so many words. And so we find two people now who are blaming others and him specifically blaming her for his eating of the fruit, and there is what? A breakdown of relationship between the two. And it's just it's not a matter, again, of just her being disobedient and him not being disobedient. Of course, he is too. But more than anything, what's happened to the two of them is that there is a breakdown in that relationship. And then as you go on in the story, like when God eventually uh, talks to the serpent for having led Eve down that path, God specifically says to the serpent, there's going to be a change now in the relationship between you and her. And so we see a change in that relationship. And now human beings are scared to death. He's going to strike our heel. We will crush his head. I don't think that's the intention of the relationship between human beings and serpents in the beginning, but it ends up being that way because of the fall. There's a change in terms of the garden and the relationship there. It was a beautiful place, a wonderful place in which two human beings could walk and meet with God and everything was just wonderful. But now it becomes a place of shame. And they themselves are naked. They have to use parts of the garden to cover up their bodies, to keep God and themselves perhaps from seeing them. 
And so the relationship between human beings and this garden with nature has changed. And of course, there's a huge difference in the relationship between themselves and God. And so he comes into the garden and he wants to talk with them the way that he's done before. And now what do they do? They have to try and hide. Now they want to cover themselves up. And so God comes and asks the question of them, who told you that you were naked? Because he knew things had changed. In fact, it's important to understand that God knew when he asked the question what had happened. It's not as though he's isolated, that he doesn't understand. And isn't it the case that despite the fact that God sees them having broken this relationship, that he still reaches out to them, that he comes to them and tries to, in fact, do good things for them in the midst of the broken relationship. And so while the story of the fall is preeminently not just about not obeying, but is preeminently about the breaking of relationship, it is also about the restoring of that relationship. Again, when God comes into the garden, he knows. But he reaches out to them anyway. Notice that he doesn't when he gives curses out. He curses the snake and says, you're going to lie in the dust and have no legs. You're on the crawl on your belly. There'll be enmity between your offspring and hers. And there's a curse to the snake. Notice that there's actually no curse offered to the woman and to the man. What he says to her is, your pain in childbirth is going to be multiplied. And what he says to the man is, you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. But only to the snake does God say, you are cursed. Why is that? I think it's only because he loved them. God doesn't go around giving curses on those whom he loves when they sin because he loves them. And so he builds relationship back in this story between himself and them. He seeks them in the garden. He even, in many ways, the, the things that he tells them about childbirth and about working by the sweat of their brow, even that is a, a grace-filled act and that he doesn't destroy them on the spot. He gives them animal skins to clothe themselves so that they'll be warm. He protects them from eating from the tree of life so that they won't eat from the tree and live forever in that state. Actually keeps them from being able to go in. Stations an angel outside the garden so that they can't go back in and eat from the tree of life because he knew that for them to eat from the tree of life in that condition, oh, that's not what he wants at all for those whom he loves. And so this story... In addition to being a story of the fall is this wonderful story of grace and love and the rebuilding of relationship. Because that's what God does with you and me. And it takes a long time for the relationship to be fully built. In fact, for all the places or things to be in place that are going to rebuild the relationship, when does that finally happen? It only happens with the coming of Jesus. And when Jesus comes, then all of the horrible things that take place with the fall and the 
destruction in one way of humankind and the destruction of the, of the spiritual nature into the sinful nature, only in Christ is there then the opportunity to have finally the relationship rebuilt and a new nature established in humankind. So we read in Romans chapter 8 that God has restored the relationship. God has restored the nature. And now the tree is, uh, the tree is back. I, I have a friend who's got a sermon that he preaches called, The Tree is Back. And that's the refrain throughout the sermon. Throughout the, sermon. the tree is back. The tree is back. And the point is, is that the tree of life that had been taken from humankind is now placed back in their lives. Not literally, but spiritually through the offering of Jesus. And now it's a new tree. It's a cross that brings life. But there's a tree of life that we now feed from. We can now eat from. And there's no, no rule about us not eating from the tree any longer. Because now in Jesus, our sinful nature is going to be transformed. The sinful nature can be eradicated. And we can see all the effects of the fall reversed in the person of Jesus. So I, I don't know if you're a person who lives under the sinful nature that has never been transformed or not. But if you are, let me just tell you that you have a chance to have something new and different take place for you in your life that's never in one sense been done before for you. And that is for the sinful nature to be transformed. You can be a different person because of what God did in Jesus by restoring the tree of life back for you on the cross. Praise the Lord that he gives us this wonderful gift of life in Jesus that reverses the effects of the fall. Let's pray. Lord God, there is so much going on uh, in this portion of Scripture. There's so much here about, uh, about who Satan is and about what sin is and, and about what happened here. Father, we know that in the very beginning, choices were made that led to the separation between ourselves and you. But Father, we also know that there were decisions made even before that by you about reconciling us to you through Jesus. And so we are thankful today on, as we think about this weekend and the things that do mean so much to us and for which we're thankful. More than anything, God, we're thankful today for Christ. We praise you that we've received back a tree of life from which we can eat and live with you eternally. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen.